Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in Iran. My guest today is Dr. George Kalansis. Uh, George is a professor of theology and director of the Wheaton Center for Early Christian Studies at Wheaton College in uh, outside of Chicago. George has a several master's degrees and a PhD in religious and theological studies from Northwestern University. He's author of a few books, including uh, my favorite titled Caesar and the Lamb, Early Christian Attitudes on War and Military Service, which uh, basically is the topic of our discussion today. So please welcome to the show, the one and only Dr. George Collins. George Clancis, a scholar that I've admired, I mean, from a distance for a while. Never, never, this is the first time we're talking. So thanks so much for coming on Theology in Iran. Thank you. It's wonderful meeting you. So uh, we're just chatting offline. Uh, your book, Caesar and the Lamb, Early Christian Attitudes on War and Military Service. I love the cover. Did you pick this out? This is really daring. <laughs> no, no, the the publisher did. Okay. Uh, we, we, we had a little bit of a debate about the cover because the book is about the Roman Empire, and that's a Greek helmet. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> and probably three people do that, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. I so in my so I, I wrote a book. It was originally called Fight. Now it's called Nonviolence. And I have a whole chapter on you know the pre-Nicene um, Church and their attitudes towards killing in particular, but also military service. So. And that's not my primary area. So I, when I came across your book, I was like, oh, my word, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And so I just devoured. I, I loved, loved reading through this. It's been over 10 years now. And that book, my book was published in 2013. I, when was yours? 2011 or something? Or 11 or 12. 12, I yeah. think. I remember it came out shortly, like, while I was doing research. So I was like, man, this is this is a godsend. So give us an old, I mean, this is your area of expertise. Give us an overview. What was, you know, when it, and then when I say pre-Nicene, I'm talking like, you know, was it three twelve? Is that the the, the three thirteen? Is that the oh no no? Nicene, Nicene is three twenty five. Yeah, three twenty five. So persecution ends with the Edict of Milan in three thirteen. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so before three thirteen, you know, Christianity is largely a persecuted minority. All of a sudden, right. you know, Constantine gets saved sort of, and now Christianity is pretty popular. And then they becomes you know the official religion of the empire later on that century so a lot of changes going on there so we're looking at the pre like before that before right. the church came into positions of power so what what were the early christian attitudes towards i guess killing yeah. and military service oh that's that's a wonderful question and and i want to say that uh, 300 years is a long time so we, we need to take it period by period the earliest then the middle which is the period cl closer to the 250s or so, the last 50, 70 years before Constantine, and then right before Constantine, uh, the, the last few years from roughly 284, 285 through the rise of Constantine. So these are three different periods. And uh, if we start from the end of that, right, the peri Nicene period, uh, right at the right, Constantine becomes comes to the throne in the beginning of the century, in the 306, in um, 305, 306, in um, the western part of the empire, uh, and becomes sole emperor, in other words, reunites the east and western part of the empire in 324, in the summer and fall of 324, a year before Nicaea. So that middle period is crucial. Uh, because 
that's also a period of great, it's, it's called the great persecution. Uh, it, it's about 10 years of, um, roughly about 10 years, where the persecution is, uh, and we read about that in Eusebius of Caesarea and Lactantius and other historians of that time, actually framed that persecution, framed how the Christians of that period saw war, military service, bloodshed, the empire, everything. And that is because in their lifetime, the, the church had been at peace. So for about 40 years before that, the church had not been persecuted at all. So peace, the church had, Christianity had been recognized as a legal religion from the 260s. So we have a 40-year roughly period of relative peace. Well, 40 years, it's almost two generations. And during those two generations, a number of people served in administration, served uh, in the courts. They were converted while in the military. So that is the right before Constantine, what is happening. And then in 305, we have the persecution hits. The persecution is primarily present in the eastern part of the empire, that means the Greek-speaking part of the empire, not the western part of the empire where Constantine is, hits in the, in the eastern part of the empire, and it is brutal. So for writers like Eusebius, the great church historian, don't think of historian the same way we speak of historians today, but his uh, history of the church, uh, that was an apocalyptic moment. Because we thought we were at peace, and now the end is coming. At the end of that affair, Constantine comes now with the proposition of uniting the empire under one faith. Well, the Christians of that time then see that as a millennial moment. Oh, yeah. Jesus is coming back in the form of Constantine. So the descriptions of the ecclesiastical history, the last two books, which are the Constantinian period, versus the first eight books, which are the pre-Constantinian period, are substantially different. Hmm. Because for Eusebius, Jesus just returned. When you say returned, did they think Constantine was actually the embodiment of Jesus, or just he represented? He, he was the expression of Jesus. The yeah. expression, okay. Right, yeah. So how would Jesus come back, right? Well, either come from the heavens, riding on a horse, or, wait a minute, here is Constantine okay. uh, marching into battle with the labyrinth, with the Christian symbol, claiming the name of God, recognizing Christianity as a permanent part of the conscience of the Roman Empire, uh, confessing to be a Christian, right? Being baptized later in life as a Christian. Yeah. The kingdom started. Wow. Wow. So the the fourth century has a lot of millenarian attitudes. Before that, in the earliest, if you go to the other side uh, of Christianity, the after the the New Testament period, the apostolic period, Christianity is a marginalized minority religion. There is no one, not not one ever, at any sense of the imagination, in the late first, early second, mid second century, who would consider Christianity as a dominant religious, political, social event. Or, or player, or would assume that at any level, Christians would be in power. 
that's all, that's why also all the writings from that period, including the New Testament, are from the margins. This is how you behave towards the emperor, this or the king. This is how you behave towards your civil responsibility, taxes and authorities, etc. Nowhere would Paul ever imagine that the Caesar would be Christian. That's just unimaginable, right? Why? Because that's not the place of Christianity. So Christianity's place is to be at the margins, proclaiming a counter kingdom, a different kingdom. The letter of Diognetus, right, in the middle of the second century, or the letter to Diognetus. It's an open letter. It's an apologetic letter. It's an open letter to the emperor. Basically, please don't kill us. We are are not a threat to you. Why are we not a threat to you? Because we do not rebel. We love our enemies. We feed and clothe those who persecute us. We take care not only of our own who are in need, but your co-religionists who are in need. We are friend to everyone, Diognito says, and yet we're persecuted by everyone. So those are two different, almost completely antithetical ways of looking at church and state at the beginning of our story and at the end of the story. At the beginning of the story, it's never a question of power. At the end of the story, that may work. Is it just the numbers? Christianity just kept growing and growing and growing. Is that really what it comes down to? I mean, when you have, you know, 2% of the, or whatever, you know, I don't have these stats in front of me, but if 2% of the empire is Christian, it's like, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah you're de- by yeah. definition on the margin. But if all of a sudden you have like 48% or 57% at the end of, you know, so it's just, it's a numbers game, really. It's a numbers game. Yeah. Once, once Christianity starts getting above 10%, which is roughly the middle of the third century, or in the 200s, uh, then it's sociologically a group to be reckoned with or to be accounted for. Okay. By the time of Constantine, by the time of the late second, uh, excuse me, late third, early fourth century, Christianity is a strong minority. It has never been a plurality mm-hmm. uh, until the late fourth okay. century. Even at the time of Constantine, it was under 50%, somewhere okay. in the low 40%. That's massive growth. I remember reading a book years ago by Rodney Stark. He's a he was a secular at the time, a secular sociologist. Is his, is it rise in the rise of Christianity? Is that That's still right. kind of a, a go-to? Is that yeah. like or is that one of many yeah. books that have talked about why Christianity? Right. Yeah. It's one of the many books of why Christianity rose. But Stark's book actually shows us extrapolated statistics of how it, it, it ah. rose. Okay. And the reasons for the rise of Christianity, of course, was the way it treated um, those in need and the marginalized, especially women. Right? Wasn't it? Wasn't it just it grew like wildfire with so many women being converted? Is that and and carrying on the kingdom? Yeah, Christianity, even to this day, global Christianity to this day is over two thirds women. The church globally is over two thirds women. And and that makes sense in the Roman world, where the courses of norm or the course of honor, the the career, administrative career, or pertains to the men, not to the women. So the men had to follow the religious practices of the time in order to advance in political office or to to be able to uh, conclude contracts or to sell sell and buy and all that. Very few people would care about what your family thought of. It, it's you as a one as the male head of the household 
do you participate in the ritual practices of the community, religion, right? Not not what your household looks like. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's different. We we shouldn't think of just one um, flatline kind of like like right. Christian political position in these 300 years. So there's there's differences. There's growth. There's you know more coming into more potential power. Um, was there? Yeah. Let's go back to the 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 question then. So Christians, the Christian view on military service, on killing, on violence as as a whole. Can you give us an overview of you know taking into account the different kind of yeah yeah. With that in mind, then we have to separate the questions of killing, which is against the sixth commandment, and war, or rather military service. And military service is not seen any differently than uh, administrative service or political service or civil service. Why? Because the order of joining either body or either branch of the services is the same. It begins with an oath, right? Uh, Which the Romans called the sacramentum. That's how a Roman soldier enters the legions, enters the army. So the entering into the army is under the auspices of the gods, and the particular god who is superintending the affairs of this particular region or particular legion. So to enter into military service is a religious affair. Then to be in military service is a religious affair. Every year, uh, every few months, you have to stand in front, like in formation, in your good uniform, and offer sacrifices to the gods who are going to protect you. The beginning of a campaign begins with sacrifices and omens from the gods and to the gods. Um, so everything in the Roman world is superintended by the gods. If you say as a Christian, yeah, but like they're not real. How do you march into battle? <laughs> uh, how do you march into battle? Who's protecting you in battle? Because everyone around you affirms that they're protected by this deity or that deity. Can they trust you? Because actually you are the one who's going to bring the wrath of the gods on the cohort, on the legion, right? Does, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. So it, it's, I mean, you can't separate military participation from just participation in in the pagan religion of the time. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is why in the church order documents we see for centuries to come, for the next three, four centuries, when we come to the church order documents, uh, which are the uh, church order documents or documents that speak of how the church functions as a church, right? On the sections of baptism, they have whole sections. You know, if so-and-so or somebody who is a brothel keeper comes and wants to be baptized, they have to cease from being a brothel keeper. And, right? If a slave trader, if a gladiator, whatever. If a soldier comes and says that they have to, they want to be baptized, now we have two categories those who are before they joined the mm. army, and those who are already in the army. So how do you treat them? Well, the church order documents say those who are already in the army and want to be baptized, they have to understand, they have to be told, but they have to refuse the order to... I mean, that that gets you killed, right? <laughs> gets you a little bit in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, let's march into battle, but I'm not going to kill, yeah, right? Yeah. I go, hmm. <laughs> and of course, the other category is those who want to join the military, but also want to be baptized. Stop. You're not allowed to do that because you lie. Well, why do you lie? 
Well, if you are baptized, you claim you, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your confession is that Jesus is Lord. Okay. And then on Tuesday, you walk over to the camp and say, I now want to claim Caesar as my Lord. You go, those two don't go together. You've you got to choose who your Lord is. Was it so? I, know th- I remember this coming up a lot in my research. Again, I'm reaching back over 10 years, but. Um, you know, some people said, you know, the only reason why Christians had a problem with military service, it wasn't with military per se. It wasn't with, you know, even killing on the battlefield, killing for your country. It was simply uh, because it was so it was what you said. It was all idolatry. Is that the only and I guess it's kind of a, yeah. a, a loaded question because I, I feel like I I know that in my reading, I did. See, obviously, it's like obviously giving your description of what the military is, is like that would be huge problems for any Christian and military service. But I remember seeing that that wasn't the only reason like they did see it and they had an ethical problem simply with killing. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Yes. But in our time, and that's why I presented that in the book to, to, to realize the order of things, Mm. because in our time we flip the order. We see the objection to killing as the primary prescription against joining armies, etc. For Christians, that was understood as the consequence of worshiping the true and living God of the Bible, Jesus, rather than the gods of the pagans. What do the gods of the pagans demand? Sacrifice, blood, including the battlefield, right? What does Jesus demand? Peace and love of enemy. Right, so there's an order to these things. So first is under who is your Lord. Secondly is what does your Lord demand, and third, therefore, why do you participate or refuse to participate in the practices demanded by your Lord in the system in which you find yourself? So it's yeah, that's interesting. So it's it's a whole like intertwining of just complete mm-hmm. fundamental different kingdom values and 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 exactly did they use language of kingdom in that like like we you know we just have a we christians have a whole whole other way of going about living in this world like it just absolutely just just conflicts with what rome's trying to do that's right yeah okay that's right and they did and and even all the way down later two centuries later in, in the city of god by by augustine uh augustine remember lives in a completely Christianized world. It's a completely different world than the world of the first two centuries. Uh, the, the two kingdoms, right? Vasilia Theu, or the kingdom of God, is everywhere present in these writings. Origen talks about that. Tertullian talks about that. Diognetus, uh, Diognetus talks about that. So the idea of Jesus is my Lord, and that is not just a religious affection. That is also a political statement means that my king, who's my lord, is not of this world. And therefore, you, O king of this world, are subordinate to the lord Mm -hmm. under whose kingdom you're supposed to be. So uh, we would pray for you for wisdom and peace and health and justice. But we're not going to obey you Mm -hmm. because we obey the king of our, our kingdom. Which is the kingdom of God, and and yet, so like, what about like a Romans, the Romans thirteen, First Peter two, mm-hmm. submitting to government? They still, I mean, Christians were, would you say, in the these three centuries ish, were were they no, were they were they good citizens? One, yeah. 
And were they known for being good citizens or were they seen as kind of like, were they seen as so non-conforming that they were, you know, a threat to the empire? Well, I guess when they're, when they're in small numbers, they're not a threat, but yeah. How, how yeah. Does that question make sense? Kind of two sides of the Absolutely same. Absolutely makes yeah. sense. Absolutely. And, and we have to remember that Christians, like more people, vary, right? Should Christians do X? We go, well, no, but do Christians do X? Well, yes. That doesn't make it permissible, it makes it life. So one of the first accusations against Christians during the period of persecution was treason, sedition. Why? Because they would not swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord. But parallel to that, all Christian, like all the apologetic by the Christians of the first few centuries is, please, you Romans, realize that because we do not obey your commandments, it doesn't mean we rebel against you. Right, we honor you, but we do not obey you, and that's the key difference. Christians and Tertullian makes a huge uh, argument out of that. Are not rebels in history? In, in in the history of scriptures, in the history of the tradition out of which Christianity arose, Maccabees, for example, uh, just a few generations earlier, are a great example of a rebellion. Right, we will not accept what you Greeks and Romans, Greeks at that time, the Syrian uh, types, want to impose on us, and we'll take arms against you. Christians go, no, no, no. Christians do not take arms. We do not take up arms. And that would differentiate between obeying and honoring. And that's Peter's argument, right? Honor the king. doesn't say obey the king. Obey the king does not exist anywhere in the New Testament. It says honor the king. And the difference, of course, in practice is how do you honor the king without obeying the king? The king said, or the authorities, right? The king said to Peter and Paul and the apostles, stop preaching or we will kill you. What did they do? They said, you have the right to kill us. Yeah. Here is my neck. Kill me. That's honoring the Caesar, honoring Caesar or the king. But you don't obey the king. It's like accepting the results of civil disobedience. I mean, MLK is a classic exactly. example when, when he disobeyed. You know, like he, he would say, you know, we have a moral obligation to disobey an unjust law, but I'm a good citizen. I'm going to accept the consequences. You want prison time? Okay, I'll go do. I'll, I'll accept the consequences because I will submit to my governing authorities. You know, but I'm not going to obey them when they're d- doing unjust things. You know, exactly. That's it. That's that's it. That's what part of what we're. I'm sorry. That's part of what we're missing quite often, and that is why. Reading the acts or the stories of the martyrs, especially the military martyrs, is very, very important. Because these are all stories of people who came to that point of civil disobedience, saying, wait a minute, I have not been thinking about this the right way. I have been serving in the military for these many years. But now that you, pagan, put me on the spot and say, as a Christian, can I do that? Obviously, I cannot do that. So now I have a choice. Do I continue participating in what I was thinking that I could get away with before? Or do I accept the consequence? And in all these stories, they accept the consequence. Really? All the, like, so we have lots of stories of Christian martyrs in the military for refusing to bow the knee to Caesar while being in the military. And so they just... That's right. Wow. Yeah, they're killed. And, and, and that's the beauty of the story of, of Cornelius, for example, right? Cornelius. Uh, uh, Luke talks about Paul's, vi- I mean Peter's visit to Cornelius. 
who's a centurion of the first order. That means that his his rank is somewhere between a major and a lieutenant colonel. So that that kind of thing. The story continues. I mean, we remember the story. And Peter preaches the gospel to him. He's a God fear, and the whole household is baptized. And Cornelius says, "Look, confessed Jesus as Lord." Now, I would expect Luke to continue. And Peter told him to stop killing people or stop being in the military. That's not what Luke says. Luke doesn't say anything. And and many, I have to respond to a lot of people who say, see, Cornelius says, you know, that's a good point for, for the gospel to say, stop serving in the military. But it doesn't. Therefore, that's permission. Hmm. I go, mm, not if one understands, as a classicist or understands how the Roman military worked. Because Cornelius is not just a military leader. Cornelius has a priestly office in his legion. It's his job. It's it's his duty to offer sacrifices on behalf of his troops. Once a month, he would stand in front of his troops in, in full uniform and offer sacrifice as a priest on behalf of his He's a, he's a pagan worship leader, not just a military yes, commander, right? I absolutely. mean, it's uh, so it, it's, I mean, because, yeah, and I've, I get this a lot, you know, argument from silence or the fact they got, you know, or even like in Luke, was it Luke 3? You know, you have people, the soldier, you know, what should I do to follow Jesus? And it's in this context where everything's about money and economics. It's not like this holistic, here's a laundry list of things you need to stop doing. But, um, I, you know, people take that as, you know, see, he didn't tell them to leave the military. But what you're saying is, just a, a basic understanding of what the Roman military was would make it just ba- utterly incompatible to to stay That's in right. the military and not be living a very synchristic, you know, either, either, you know, violating basic Christian principles. So we have to assume that if Cornelius was a faithful follower, he would have, he would have had to have left the military, right? That's right. And, and his period, and actually that period of the middle first century, begin middle of the first century, is one of the two periods where Christ, where whoever wanted could actually retire from the military, leave the military without consequence. Ah, the other one is at the end of the third century, in the Diocletian purge. Oh, so he wouldn't have had his head on the chopping block if he said, "Hey, I no, okay, I'm out." Yeah, he would lose his pension, but yeah. he's out. Yeah, interesting. I want to go back to so the early Christian view. Let's just say in general, was you know serving in the in the Roman military is incompatible for a few reasons. You know, idolatry, which is intertwined with also ethics, is just a, there's just a conflict here um, between how this kingdom lives, how our, the Christian kingdom is supposed to live. Was there diversity of thought? Because we would, you know, today we have, you know, our own range of Christian perspectives on, you know, serving in the military. Did you have that kind of range back then? Or was there a consensus view? Or, yeah. I mean, also, I mean, just for our audience that's not aware, I mean, prior to, and you're the expert, so tell me if I'm saying something totally off the wall, but like, you know, prior to the edict of Milan. I mean, Christianity is growing in pockets around the empire. Um, but man, as a persecuted minority, I mean, they're, they're not like having big meetings, you know, like the council of That's Nicaea, right. they're all getting together. All right, what do we believe? Like we've got like disagreements on all kinds of doctrines, uh, we, uh, disagreements on what books belong in the Bible. You got Alexandrians reading a, almost 
you know, largely the same Bible, but they're including yeah. books and excluding books. And then you have people in, in Asia Minor, you know. So, yeah, yeah, Christianity is really dispersed and uh, disparate and kind of fractured. Um, and so one part of the empire might look quite different. So I would expect there to be diversity. There's diversity in almost everything back then. Was there diversity on Christians and military service? Yeah. One one would expect that. And, and actually much has been made of the fact uh, that there has to be variety of opinion on this. What is surprising is we don't have a single one, not one, not a single document, not a single argument for the service in the military before Be, before uh, before the middle of the fourth century. Wow, that I mean, I that's what I came across, but I'm not the expert, so I'm like, I, maybe I'm missing something here because I, you know, I don't want to claim like as if I've read everything, but you know, back then. But well, that's how do you explain that? That's fascinating. <laughs> that's what surprises surprised me out of this because I was expecting to see. Okay, under these circumstances, you can do that. Which, again, as a as a historian, as a theologian, conceptually would not make sense to me because of the claim of sovereignty and lordship of Christ. But let's assume that we find some, and yet there is none, not one, not a single one that says service in the military or the government or the government is a pious or the government is a pious, admirable, even permissible Christian engagement. Can you expand on the the government piece? Because that, 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 yeah. a lot of listeners perked up here. I think, like, whoa, whoa, because yeah. you know, we're, we're and, and we're not we're dealing with history here. We're not necessarily saying, therefore, go and do likewise. But I think it understanding the the first Christians, how they lived in light of Christ and the New Testament, and and I think that does that should do something to how we you know it should speak to our our uh, current situation right. on some level. That's right. And the, the argument for the for participation in the government or positions of authority, the magistrate, okay. etc. It doesn't have to go all the way to the palace, like magistrate, etc. Is the same. It's parallel to the military service. How does a Roman enter civil service? Well, by a pagan oath and a, and a pledge of allegiance to the emperor as lord, to the gods who superintend the empire and the city. Right. So how do you become a magistrate? Tertullian has a section on that. Let's assume, he says, that you can become a magistrate without taking the oath, mm -hmm. without taking a bribe, without giving a bribe, without promising that you will bring you know, law and order, basically, and without ever using the sword, because that's the other part. To be a magistrate, you have the responsibility of condemning persons to death. Let's assume he says that you can do all that. First, he says, what good are you? <laughs> because the office of the magistrate demands those things from you, right? Like, you know, I'm going to be your mayor, but I will do nothing of the things that the mayor does. So what's the point of that? And the second, he says, is what makes you think that entering an office that has been soiled by others, you will remain clean? Been soiled by others? What is... Um... In other words, others have abused the office. Others, they have bribed, they have killed, and they have... Uh misuse the office. He says, if you wear a dirty cloak, the cloak of the magistrate, in other words, look at what you're trying to do historically. What's this position for? What makes you think that you will remain clean by entering that same condition? There's something intrinsically morally unclean with this office itself. Right. So when you go That's into right. there, we have a track record of everybody falling into unethical forms of power and abuse and all the, you know, okay. 
mm. which which is a different story for our times, right? Or perhaps it raises different mm -hmm. questions for our time. Yeah. Right? Can I reform the office? Right. I, I don't know. But that's the point. The point is we have no writings. And I it, it just, as I read all the primary, every single primary document we have, and that's why I present them in the book, there are those who say, well, those who affirmed participation are didn't write. They're a silent majority. My cheeky counter-argument to that is, one, the majority of the New Testament is written by one family of thought, the Pauline family of thought, right? Luke, Acts, letters. How do we know that the vast majority or the silent majority do not you know, advocate for divorce, advocate for syncretism? All we have is what we have. Right. We cannot make the argument from silence when every other evidence we have is against that particular practice. Well, it, it, even if that was the view of the populace, wouldn't you see that reflected in the writings? Wouldn't the writers, the theologians, the leaders be addressing that through their writings? Right. Um, Somewhere it, it should say that. And I'm, I'm trying to think of <laughs> I'm trying to think of the counter. Maybe the counter argument would be well, the fact that they had to say Christians shouldn't do this, Christians shouldn't do this. There were Christians that were doing it, and I would assume I would assume that's true. But to say that that's kind of the consensus majority view of the populace, I don't know. That... <laughs> and, and that's why we have to separate practice, yeah, from principles. Okay, yeah. Again, both Tertullian and Origen talk about, and those who are in the armies, and, and that almost always meant soldiers who have been converted to Christianity. Right? These are not Christians who join the legions. It's a those who become Christians being the leader. This is what you're supposed to do now. You're supposed to exit if you can. You're supposed to stop obeying the command to kill, right? Uh, because this is serious business. Yeah. So it's the same question. You know, uh, if, if, if uh, someone comes to baptism and is a slave trader, they have to stop that. Why would you include that if no slave traders ever came for baptism? Right? That's the idea. But the response is always, and it's univocal. If you claim Jesus as Lord, if you affirm that you are a member of God's kingdom, you cannot claim that Caesar is Lord. And you cannot participate in the systems of Caesar, including allegiance. So what good are you to the army? Yeah, yeah. This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens. Okay, so I've tried all kinds of different nutrition drinks off and on over the last like 15 years. And the one that I found to be the most effective is Athletic Greens, which is now called AG1. Now, just to be clear, I've been consistently taking AG1 now for uh, about nine months prior to them sponsoring this podcast. Okay, so I'm not just supporting some random product. I'm promoting AG1 because I've already been a huge fan of it. AG1 is like a nutrition bomb to the body. One scoop of AG1 just saturates your system with a wide variety of nutrients. It's packed with uh, 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. It also replaces a lot of other supplements like a daily taking a you know, multivitamin every day or other minerals, pre or probiotics. This is what I love about it. It contains nutrients that support your gut health. And as I've been learning the last few years, like your gut health is so essential to a healthy body. And AG1 actually tastes good. My wife, who uh, typically gags on other 
nutrition drink. She said she actually wakes up craving AG1 when she wakes up in the morning. So if you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you, the listener, a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So you can go to athleticgreens.com forward slash T-I-T-R. That's at athleticgreens.com forward slash T-I-T-R. Go check it out. This episode is sponsored by Biola University. Biola is consistently ranked as one of the nation's leading Christian universities. Biola has over 300 academic programs at both the undergraduate and graduate levels, which are available both in Southern California and online. With leading academic programs like business, film, science, and more, Biola's biblically integrated curriculum helps students grow closer to God and gain a deeper understanding of Scripture. In fact, I was just uh, at the Biola campus a few weeks ago. I, I toured the campus and talked with several deans and professors, and every single one I talked to was so passionate about making Christ first in all things. I mean, Biola's quality of academics is well documented. There's no doubt about that. But I was most impressed with how utterly Christ-centered the school is. So, At Biola, students become equipped for a thriving life and career. They'll learn how to articulate their Christian beliefs. And most of all, they'll be prepared to serve as God's instrument in their community and around the world. Now, through June 1st, Um, 2023, you can use the promo code PRESTON to waive the application fee for any Biola program. Okay, the deadline used to be May 1st. They actually extended it for our audience to June 1st. So get your application in before June 1st. Uh, Put in the code PRESTON and get your application fee waived. Uh, Some restrictions may apply. Just visit www.biola.edu for more information. You said, okay, I don't want to get, this is a, maybe a footnote because we, we, or early, early we talked about the language of obedience, submission, honor. I want to throw in another word, allegiance, the, the word you just used. So, so in here, I'm just going to draw on my modern day thinking where, you know, I, 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 allegiance feels too religious to me to say I can give my allegiance to anything other than Christ as Lord. Um, so for instance, I, you know, I, and I've said this before and I, you know, like some people are thankful I said, other people are upset, whatever, you know, my, my journey. But like, I I don't pledge the allegiance specifically because I'll stand, I'll give honor. I'll give respect. I'll be a, I'll be the best citizen in Babylon (laughs) as an exile. Um, I got my exile shirt. Um, but you know, allegiance hand over the heart like that to me, that feel like, I don't, I can't imagine a first century or first three century of Christians giving allegiance to Caesar as this is how I submit to my government authorities. I give their, my allegiance to them. I'm like, those are two, those feel very different. So here's my question. Is there language that would be translated allegiance that Christ, did Christians talk about this, like allegiance? Right. Or was it simply like, yeah, we don't worship Caesar, you know, um, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, does that make, it, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the language uh, that we, the language of allegiance, uh, does not mean the same thing in antiquity. Okay. But what it does is the practice of allegiance. So when we speak ah. of the imperial cult or the sacrifices to Caesar, no one was dumb enough to think that you offer a sacrifice to Caesar to bring rain down. That's not the point. The imperial cult or the imperial worship is that. It's it's pledge of allegiance. Okay. You come in front of the city in an altar and you Say specific words. Bring the name of Caesar to the gods 
pledging allegiance to him, in essence. That's the idea. It is like standing up, putting your hand over your heart, and saying, I pledge allegiance to Caesar. And Christians go, no, 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 we cannot do that. Why? Because we have pledged allegiance to Christ. If, if in my baptism I have pledged allegiance to Christ, that means I have recognized Jesus as Lord, I cannot stand in front of the city and say, Caesar is Lord. I'm, I'm lying. It's In one of the two statements, I am lying. So I, I could hear people say, well, yeah, but in, in, in today's world, again, in, in, the, in that day and age, you're dealing with everything's religion and politics is so intertwined that, you know, yeah. to do so would be idolatry. But now we have a separation of church and state. Our allegiance to the country we're living in is, is simply a political thing, uh, not a religious yeah. thing. I, I would I think there's a lot more civil religion in politics than, than people realize. But um would that be a fair distinction, do you think? Or or yeah. It, it, it would be a linguistic it, it's a distinction without a difference. The Romans don't care who's in your heart. Like Jesus in your heart doesn't matter. Yeah, they care less about your personal little Jesus, yeah. <laughs> that, not not at all. What they care about are the practices. Religio comes from relegare, to bind together, right? In other words, religion is not what you think here. It is how you live your life. So do you, as a Roman citizen, live your life in accordance to the habits and the customs and therefore practices towards the gods that we do? In other words, are we doing this thing, civil thing, in front of the gods together? Hmm. Or are you separating outside of the group and therefore the wrath of the gods are going to come against us? Romans would be very, very comfortable, very comfortable in our stadium of a modern game where we all practice together habits of religion. In unison, we turn and in unison, we say and in unison, we pledge, right? That's religion. Those are religious type practices. Those are liturgies, right? right. I mean, those are religious That's practices. Right. That's right. Even if That's it's right. not blatantly called a religion, like no one would say, mm-hmm. no one would say, you know, yeah, when you pledge allegiance, you're literally worshiping America, you know, whatever. But like there is there is liturgical practices and rhythms going on that are designed that way to 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 unite, right? Your your citizenship and unite under one flag and so on. Um yeah. Which even that a, for a, for a member of the global kingdom, the global multi-ethnic kingdom of God, our communal unification is is not under one nation. Like my my, if anything, if I'm going to stand and pledge anything in a corporate liturgical manner, it's going to be with representatives of the global kingdom of God. Yeah. Not yeah. I mean, mm. we have our we have our civic temples. We call them. We used to call them. Malls, shopping malls. <laughs> uh, th- those are civic religion places, right? They're structured so as to form common behavior. We have them in, like, what's the first thing one does at morning at school for, for 12 years, right? Uh, so you, one wonders, you come out at the age of 18, fully formed citizen. Those practices, it's always funny. I, I, I ask my students, I say, do you all remember the Pledge of Allegiance? They chuckle and go, okay, let's do this. So recite the Pledge of Allegiance. They, you know, takes a moment, you know, and then they get into a rhythm. You have a class of 40 students. They they keep the rhythm at the same, it, it, they're synchronized in the rhythm. The commas are in the same place. The periods are in the same place. They, they end together, right? 
great. Now recite the creed. <laughs> uh, which one? You go, that's question number one. <laughs> and then you have, you know how the story is going to go with that. But that's the whole idea. The whole idea is that what we think as religion for the Romans, it's not Zeus in your heart. They don't care. The Romans really don't care. They allow anyone and everyone to have anything they have, they want. You can have Jesus in your heart as long as you come to the temple or the stadium to do the public thing together with us in honoring of the gods and Caesar and these things that we call Roman state. Who's in your heart? Your problem. Anyone can be in your heart. It's the civic participation, the, the participation in the civic liturgies. They won't that's call right. them liturgies, but they're I mean, that's by definition, yeah. these are these are liturgical. One quick question on the history, then I want to ask a few questions of what, what do we where do we go from here kind of kind of thing. Um, okay, so so military service, killing in the military. Sorry, there's a consensus among the writings we we have. Um, what about just killing? In general, were, you know, would yeah. you say that by and large, the early church works, for lack of better terms, pacifists as as a whole? You know, somebody comes in yeah. and breaks into their house, whatever. You know, um, did they talk about that as much, or is it mainly just talking about killing in, in the military? Yeah, Th- those hypothetical questions. Somebody comes to your house and yeah. wants to kill you. My, I usually respond, "Why do they want to kill me? Yeah, <laughs> why my house? Like, I mean, there's a whole set of presuppositions behind them, right? First of all." Killing, uh, accidental killing, right? You, you're, you're carrying a load, it falls, kills a child. That's a completely different thing than intentional killing, right? And intentional killing is both by Roman law and Christian law, just forbidden. It's prohibited. Really? Right? Even in self-defense? I mean, or, um, or... So that's, that's absolutely key here. Christian writers who write about killing very specifically say Christians do not kill even in self-defense. Why? Because we affirm the sovereignty of God. This is either something we affirm and live our lives by it, or it isn't. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna resist. Remember civil disobedience, right? I'm not gonna resist, I'm not gonna rebel, and therefore I will not have a reason to kill. Not the opportunity, plenty of opportunities, but the reason to kill. Right? I will not defend myself. Why? Because God defends me. And if God wants me dead, the resurrection is here. That was that was one, and we forget this. We forget, as Christians, we forget what the resurrection means. For early Christians, the resurrection is was the centering event. All of history, all of life, all of behavior is around the resurrection. Why? They live in a bloody world. The world of up to the last hundred years is a bloody world. Um, death rate is very high, especially for mothers and children. Uh, expectancy of life is right around mid thirties, thirty six, thirty seven, all the way up to the eighteen hundreds. Right. So mortality is is everywhere. But for Christians, the resurrection is the key. So when there are Presented with the option by the Romans. You either recant, or in, in their way, their spink is offer a sacrifice on behalf of Caesar, or we kill you. The Christian response is always, 
that's all you got? <laughs> Jesus is going to raise us from the dead. Mm. That that's your that's what you got. Mm. That's your threat. You're going to take my life away. Go ahead. Like their belief in the resurrection is so pervasive in how they just went about life. Wow. So so I, and we I, forget I, that. If I remember correctly, we do forget. It. <laughs> I forget it. Um, if I remember correctly, even Augustine. Augustine, Augustine, do you have a preference on the pronunciation? Augustine is a city in Florida. Augustine is a saint of the church. Augustine, okay. So even Augustine, if I remember correctly, even he said no killing in self-defense. And I and I say that in a shocking manner because he was kind of the one of the forerunners of just war theory. Like he he kind of had a different he wasn't a pacifist as as a whole, right? I mean, um, maybe he was not a pacifist, but but book 19, and, and that's actually the next volume that I'm working on on this is what does Augustine actually mean? Uh, force, force for Augustine is pedagogical. It's for the good of the enemy, right? If you want to enter into a war or violence, it is always with a love of enemy at heart. It's not in self-defense. Uh, since we're in self-defense. It is so that they, the enemy, may come back to a right relationship with God. Oh, which can't happen if you kill him, right? That's right. A little bit difficult uh, when you do that. <laughs> but the whole idea of pacifism is also something that we need to think through, if you have a moment. And, and people get surprised when I say pacifism is not biblical. Hmm. It, it doesn't exist in Scripture, at least the way we understand it, yeah. which is uh, sit at the margins, be, you know, in our time, you know, declare your opinion digitally by a like or dislike uh, outrage in the digital world. That's not pacifism. What scripture talks about is peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the pacifists. In other words, the Christian life is not in the margins sitting unaffected and, and remote. The Christian life is irinopietic or peacemaking. You enter actively in nonviolent resistance on behalf of the oppressed, opposing the oppressor. Whether that oppressor is a military force or a civil force or economic force or death itself. And that's how Christianity grew. Christianity grew by taking in widows and orphans uh, and, and poor people and renegade slaves and giving them a new family. That's not pacifism, at least in modern definitions. That's peacemaking. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't. Um, in- I don't like the term pacifist because it has a misunderstanding of passiveness in the face of evil. Right. I use, I mean, if I was going to be technical, I use Christocentric nonviolence, meaning um, the question of violence is a question of means of confronting evil, not whether we confront evil. hundred percent we confront evil is violence against another human, the Christian means by which we defeat the That's dragon or in Revelation 13. Okay. Um, and the answer I came up with is no, it's not, it's not the means yeah. by which we address and confront evil. So yeah, it's a, yeah, I don't, I don't like, I use it sometimes for simplicity because it's more familiar, but, um, yeah. So, so the early church, would you, um, would you say, was this kind of a fundamental belief in the early church or, or that, that, that we do not use violence period? That's right. Wow. Period. Yeah. 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 Even, and, and read Diognetus, the letter is written in the, in the mid early part of the of the second century. We are persecuted by everyone and we bless everyone. That's that's key. We so emperor or state do understand who we are before you kill us. 
we love everyone, we take care of everyone, and we will not return violence with violence. And that that's a rep- that represents what exactly. you read in the first few centuries. Exactly. Tertullian says explicitly, says, this is the single difference, he says, between Christians and everybody else. Love of enemy. This one. Do do pagans love their children? Sure. Do pagans love their cities? Absolutely. Do pagans pagans take care of their poor neighbor or you know the orphan in their neighbor? Absolutely. So what's the difference with the Christians? Tertullian says this is this one is love of enemy. We Christians love our enemies. George, I would love that we have a few more minutes here. Um uh, reflecting on all this, I mean, you're 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 a Christ follower living in, in America. Are you? When did you? You were born in Greece, right? Right. What what where, what town are you from? I've been to Greece a few times. I love my favorite country. I'm I'm from Athens, Central Athens. Central by, Athens. Yeah. The the Kalimarmar, the the modern stadium of the modern Olympics. Oh yeah, uh, the, yeah. The, the marble one that uh-huh. was our track and field in high school. <laughs> so that's my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Wow! Do you have a favorite uh, island? You have so many beautiful islands. I have a lot of favorite islands. There are two thousand of them in Greece. Yeah, <laughs> but Kefalonia and Paxus on the Ionian Paxi and Kefalonia on the Ionian Sea is a beautiful place to be. Okay, uh, I love scaffolds that. on the yeah. I've only been to two, so Mykonos and Milos. Uh, love. Yeah, Milos is beautiful. I like Milos a lot better. I mean, Mykonos is very busy and commercial and touristy and everything, and I like them more. But Milos was just oh, one of my favorite places. Um, love Athens too. Oh, anyway, um, so yeah. So you, when did you come over? How old were you when you? Thirty-seven winters ago. Um, I, I'm in <laughs> Chicago. We count time by winters. Yeah. Uh, Have you gotten used to the I, winters here? Uh, again, 37 winters. <laughs> yes. Um, I I came after high school, so I finished high school. I came for for college. The plan was to go back. Plans don't always yeah go as yeah yeah as planned. Um. So how? So you're American citizen now, right? Um. Mm-hmm. How in reading the other church, how has this shaped your personal view of uh, your Christian identity in the face of politics today? If, I, if I'm trying to think of the right ways, right way to frame sure. it, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, politics. When we use the word politics, we have to think about the context, right? So the con- our context is North America, uh, because European context is very different. African context, where I work with refugees, is completely different thing. Um, than the American context. As a historian and as an immigrant, I, I'll start with a story. Uh, when I graduated uh, during during our doctoral commencement, right, in, from Northwestern, the, the, the event started the same way all such events begin with a national anthem. And there was a floating camera. Somebody had a camera on their shoulder, who, you know, to take the the view of the crowd and all that. And as as doctoral candidates, we were at the very front of, of that sea of, of graduates. So the camera starts coming around as the flag is being raised and as, as the national anthem is sung. And he comes right next to me. Like, the camera is right right here. I don't know why. I'm an immigrant. I, I don't know the words to the national anthem. And, and I'm looking around, and I see half my class are immigrants. And they have no idea what to say next. 
So I could see my face on the big screen up in the front and look in the camera and not saying a word because that is not my civic practice. Yeah. So when I'm looking at our, our politics or our, our religio, the way we do life together, I see it from the outside as somebody who has had almost 40 years of being inside. We don't recognize how similar we are to the Roman world. We have the same liturgies from, from simple things as simple, well, small things, not simple things, of beginning the day with the Pledge of Allegiance. If you do that every day of your school years for 12 years, by the age of 18, it is part of your DNA. Somebody picks up a flag and lights it on fire. What's your response? Well, even my response is that you feel a punch in the gut, right? Why? Because for 12 years, I was pledged allegiance to this thing, right? To a piece of fabric. But we do similar things. If our, our civic religion is so common, right? Even in our money, we say, in God we trust. Mm-hmm. That's a unitive element, right? Which God? I, I don't know. But is it not incumbent upon Christians to ask, which God? Do you mean the true and living God of the Bible or something else? And if if that's what you mean, then what about uh, my Buddhist friends? Can they use that same currency? We, we live out of narratives that say we were founded by Christian values, or now it's Judeo-Christian values. And you go, which ones exactly? Like. Taking over of land, genocide, slavery, expansion, manifest destiny. Which ones exactly? What happened in the fourth century when Christianity became the official religion in the latter part of the century? Um, The analogy I use quite often is like the dog that was chasing the car now grabs the car. So now you're not responsible as Christians simply about the worship or the religion affairs of the religious affairs of the state. But now you're responsible for the buses and for the electricity and for the sewers and for the borders. Because I can live with them. You're also responsible for the brothels. Hmm. Also responsible for the slave markets. You're also responsible for the casinos, you're responsible for everything that comes with it. And now you have a problem because none of that is what you're for or made for. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And we live in a similar world in which we want to impose um, a dominant system of civil cohesion with an overlayer of religious language without actually asking the questions, which God? What are the virtues we're advocating? What does this actually mean for who we are as Christians and then as peoples and a people? So we are, as North Americans, very, very similar to the Roman world. The Romanitas of the Romans can be easily translated into Americanitas, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of our time, 
we we do have our gladiatorial games. We'll just call them football. <laughs> um, it, the idea is the same. Put a hundred men in the field and let them beat the life out of each other, right? And the last one standing, okay, that's gladiatorial games, right? Uh, our our society, the way our society works, is very similar to that. We we need the common blessing of the gods or God, right? By practices, and how do we guarantee that or the unity of our people by standing together during a game? And in unison, yeah. declaring our allegiance. <laughs> so what happens when you say, I want to hold that concept accountable mm -hmm. to its claim? Well, try it out. Kneel during the game and see what happens. Yeah. Fail to participate in the civic liturgies is not... Is, is a pretty risky thing to do. I mean, would you, so I, I mean, so I get this question a lot that, that we can't map the Roman empire onto America. Okay. And I'm like, okay, I, obviously there are differences. I, I, I do because people assume so many differences. I often like to try to draw some similarities too. And, and obviously just 2000 years later, you know, 1500 years later, I mean, there's going to be just natural differences, but there's a lot of the similar principles. Um, I mean, some are as blatant as you know the apotheosis of Washington and the rotunda in the in the Capitol building. You have this basically; it's like a painting that looks yeah. almost exactly like what you see of the deification of the Roman emperors after they die, and you have Washington. I don't know who did that, and is it? I mean, that that's just in your face in the Capitol building. I'm like, that's that's as Roman as I mean, it's exactly Roman, you know. Yeah. Um, but then other things are more subtle, like you know. Uh, comparing you know football to gladiatorial games these are these are civic liturgies um that use similar kind of practices obviously not killing each other but i mean it's um but it establishes some kind of civic cohesion and the, all these things are kind of blended together so here's the here's the question i often get is like well christians had a really kind of separate strong separation from our kingdom rome's kingdom were were very different but they didn't have the opportunity to reform Rome. They didn't have the opportunity mm -hmm. to uh, establish justice in the world through politics, through involvement. They couldn't change. They couldn't do anything in the Rome. They couldn't vote. They couldn't, all these things. Um, they were powerless. But now we have, well, it's, it's vastly different. We live in a democracy. We can vote. We can put better people in the office than other more wicked people or whatever. And and the argument is, and sometimes I think these conversations, we miss each other because then they say, therefore, we should have civic involvement. I'm like, well, I'm not saying no civic involvement. Right. Again, the whole pacifism thing. I'm not saying we sit on the margins. Of, no, we, should, we need to be agents of good and justice in the world. I, where exactly. I'm coming from is um, Babylon is Babylon empowered by the dragon. And we just always need to be very suspicious of the the, the deep-seated, multi-layered differences between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. We need to be very suspicious. And I think Martin, you know, they always, people always point to Martin Luther King. And I think, I think he was pretty suspicious too. And I think his movement is a good example of doing something that's kind of separate, you know, challenging the powers to be, but doing so, doing so through Christian means. Anyway, all that to say, how do you help me think through yeah, The question of Rome, Christians had no power. Now we do have power. We should use that power for good. I want to say that Christians had a lot of power during the Roman Empire, not on the empire. Uh, the power, the, the church is the, the church is poli political. The church is politics. Why? Because the church is the affairs of people. 
right? Every time we come to, to church together, right? How do we greet one another? Brother and sister, right? That's not a religious statement. That's a political statement. It means that you belong to my family, I belong to your family, we're one family. Regardless of your race, ethnicity, color, creed, uh, you know, Presbyterians and Baptists can be brothers and sisters, right? That is a political statement. Why? Because then it changes our behavior with the community that surrounds us. I will treat you and you will treat me in the public sphere as a brother and a sister. That's politics. Christians take care of the poor. That's our job, right? As Christians, we take care of the poor. That's politics. Christians take care of the oppressed. That's politics. Why? Because it's the way communities behave with one another. And in order for me as a Christian to engage in in advocacy for the oppressed on behalf of the oppressed, first I have to recognize the oppression, the injustice of the oppression, right? Which means, on the one hand, I have to protect or guard the oppressed, the powerless, from the effect of the oppression or the injustice, and at the same time, hold those systems of injustice and oppression accountable. Mm-hmm. That's politics. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we have we have titrated the concept of politics into party politics. That's not what politics is. To claim Jesus as Lord is a political statement. I mean, why was Jesus killed? Yeah. <laughs> like literally, the the tag like above his head said. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's a political statement. It's not a because he worshiped Yahweh. It, like Romans don't care. They care that you set up a system of sovereignty different than theirs. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So yeah. in our world, when when Christians think about poverty, right? And Christians are very good at at, at providing for the poor domestically, internationally. That's a political statement. But then we refrain from moving the next step and say, why are they poor? Yeah. No, 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 that's politics. <laughs> you know, how is that politics? <laughs> and, and and what you're doing by providing for them is not politics. Both are political. So the place of the church is to be a mirror to the state, whatever state, whatever time. It is to be a counter and a mirror to every political, every economic, every social, every civic structure and say, you are not acting according to the will of God. God has placed you to enact justice, Romans 13, right? But who's justice? God's justice. Not whichever justice the system wants to, right? God's justice. So the place of the church is to look at the state and say, are you enacting God's justice? No. Well, <laughs> look at us because we do. If you want to know what justice is, look at us. Mm-hmm. Because in our relationships, we act justly. Mm-hmm. If you want to know what reconciliation and peace looks like, look at us. Mm-hmm. Because that's what our churches and communities are like. And, and I think the hard thing is, is a lot of Christians, because we don't view the church as a political entity we kind of right. bypass we go to church and yep. worship jesus in our hearts <laughs> and then we think yeah. that it's through you know rome's babylon's america's political channels that that's where all the mm-hmm. justice stuff should be happening or that's where you know yep. the the political stuff should be happening rather than i think howard Harawas often says you know 
the best way we can reach the world is by being the church, by being that alternative right. exactly. policy, that alternative society and embodying the, the values of God's kingdom that we think are the way the world should be run, but isn't being run. Um, That's exactly it. Yeah. Do you, have you written on just the last two minutes of what you're saying? Have you written on this so, somewhere? Um, or can you recommend a book that really does a good job uh, articulating this? Um, a lot of books, but since you mentioned Stanley, since you mentioned Horowitz, a book that is old but fa- fantastically important for our time is his 1981 Community of Character Towards a Constructive Christian Social Ethics, Notre Dame Press, I think 1981. Yeah, I've been looking at, yeah, I have not read that one. I've read several things by him. Um, yeah, that is that is old enough to be, you can see the trajectories of almost everything after that. Okay, okay. I would read that. In parallel, actually, I would read Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue first. Okay, that's a big one. <laughs> that's a big one, but it's a it's a very important critique of what you described as our religious practices, going to church, Jesus in my heart, all that. And he wrote these uh, at the stage of his life where he was an atheist. So he doesn't have a dog in our religious life. The question he has is, what has the Enlightenment done to us? Mm. And what the Enlightenment has done is it created the concept of the individual as autonomous. For Christianity, uh, by definition, the relationship with God is personal. You have to say yes, no, right? But it's never individual. And no. that's what makes it political. Yeah, yeah. There's a new one out. Um, I don't know if you've seen this yet. This is this is my new favorite book on this by uh, Nile Saya, The Global Politics of the Jesus. Have you politics. seen this? Yep. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. It's a I'm, very, very good book. Yeah. I'm going to have him on the podcast, uh, I think, next oh, week. Oh, wonderful. And yeah, wonderful. I, the first two chapters here just really... I mean, put to words, and he's coming at it from a kind of, you know, he's more of a global politics expert and stuff. So he's, 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 he's putting kind of a big framework on what I see as a, as a biblical guy, you know, as an exegete. Um, yeah. Really, really helpful. So um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Scott McKnight has written on that uh, and, and others, but, but Stanley's book, uh, Harawas's book, yeah. Community of Character for me yeah. continues to be one of those books that are, pivotal in understanding okay. Okay. okay who jesus is i will order it right now <laughs> it's been <laughs> i've had my eye on except there, you know I, and he's written so much i'm like i, I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. you know i can't read everything um but yeah i'll i'll check that out well george i've, I've taken you i've taken enough of your time but thank you so much for this conversation this is super helpful and enjoyable so where can people find you uh, I'm, I'm sure you're you're if they just google your name will probably take you to your um, yep. the, to, to the wheaton website it has my email address and we can work from there. Awesome. Thank you so much. George. Okay. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.